session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Kindness of Strangers by Michael E. McCullough. The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code. Seems like an interesting topic looking at kindness and morality. So should be an interesting one. Looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Subtract by Lydie Klotz. Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. And doing these books every week, uh, I, I tend to try to get something out of all of them and enjoy reading them. But sometimes some books present a new perspective, or at least give me a new perspective. And this was one of those books. Uh, so I'm really happy I read this book and looking forward to sharing some of my thoughts with you tonight. So Subtract the Untapped Science of Less by Lydie Klotz. So essentially, Subtract, as the title and the subtitle um, imply, is about how at times we can make things better by taking things away but that we often overlook this you know there is that adage of uh, addition by subtraction which is kind of interesting Um, but it means addition as in making things better um, by taking something away but as i'm saying it it can almost seem that because we're so used to addition making things better that we still have to frame it in that way that subtraction leads to addition and so um, Lady Klotz shares a story early in the book. Uh, Legos come up a few times or many times throughout the book, not only in his personal experiences, but also in some of the experiments that were done. And so he's with his son, Ezra, who was like two or three years old at the time, and they're trying to build these two Lego towers and then to connect those towers using a bridge. But then when it comes time to try to build the bridge that connects them, they see that they're uneven. One is one uh, Lego longer than the other or taller than the other, uh, or we can say one is one Lego shorter, which actually that perspective itself could affect what you do next. And so he says when he notices this, he turned around to grab another Lego to add to the shorter side to now make them even so that they can make their bridge. But while he was doing that, he turns around and he sees that his son had just taken one away from the taller tower, which does the same thing. And this made Lighty realize that, oh, that might be actually a more efficient way, a faster way to do it. But it appears it didn't even come to his mind 
to do that, to take away as the solution to this problem. And so this set him off in a way to look at how else this might be missed by many people, or I wouldn't say it was just that, but this was a story he shared of exploring this issue of might it be that we tend to overlook taking away when we're trying to make a situation better. And so it should also be noted that this science of less, meaning that there's less there, doesn't mean that you do less, because oftentimes to subtract, it does take effort, ingenuity, creativity, insight. So it's not that you're doing less, but you're actually trying to make the situation by possibly taking something away, removing something, clearing something, different adjectives that could be used to describe taking away to make a situation better. And the research that he conducted found that, as he himself supposed, people tend to naturally go towards adding when it comes to solving a situation. So because he was inspired by this observation with his son, some of the experiments were exactly that with Legos, asking people to either improve the situation or do certain types of things to, to make it better in whatever way. And in some of the experiments, they weren't told to add or subtract, just told to make it better. And they had some Legos there so they could add them. But the option was there to subtract. And overwhelmingly, they found that people would add Legos and very few would they subtract. So adding was much more frequent than subtracting. And so it seems almost in a way we have this innate tendency or bias towards addition to adding. And so they did other experiments to see if they could understand this phenomenon a little bit better, including things like um, having people be mentally taxed. So what we often find is that if something is more automatic, if we're busy with something else, our mind is occupied, we have another task to do, we are likely to go to some kind of default state. And sure enough, they found that if people had to do some kind of a task while they were um, trying to, let's say, figure out if they should add or subtract, they were more likely, even more likely, to add rather than to subtract, to take something away. So the research seemed to support this notion that it does seem that adding comes to us much more naturally. We're much more likely to think of adding rather than thinking of taking something away. And as he points out, he's not suggesting that subtracting is always better than adding. And he says that when he gives talks or presents his research, often people ask about this or they seem to wonder, well, isn't it sometimes better to add? And of course, absolutely it is. But what actually he's suggesting or what he hopes to bring across is this notion that we might be missing or overlooking very often the possibilities that come with trying to use subtraction. So it's not add or subtract, it's add and subtract. We can do both. Interestingly, that's kind of adding, which is the opposite of subtract, but it's just to present that we can do both of these things. 
And if we don't recognize or we're so easily overlooking subtraction as even an option, that means essentially by definition, we're missing so many of the possibilities where subtraction, either subtraction or alone or subtraction along with addition can actually make a huge impact, might even be more efficient than doing things the other way around to just add. He also explores reasons why this might be the case. If we're seeing that it, it's likely that people add much more easily when they're trying to solve a solution or make something better, change things, that adding comes more easily. He explores a few reasons why that might be. And so looking at biology, there are a few different areas that might point to this. Uh, so he talks about the, the bower birds, which is interesting. There are these birds where the males, when it's time to mate for, I don't know how long, but for a period of time, they're building these really impressive structures and they'll actually use things from around the area. And because of human interactions or human infiltration to their surrounding areas, sometimes even uses uh, they'll use things that we dispose of to make this really big, impressive um, type of structure that then the females, when it's time to mate, will come and they basically like prospective home buyers go from one property to the next inspecting the homes. And sometimes they come for a, a second viewing. And if they like what they see, they choose that male. But what's interesting to mate with that male. But what's interesting is that they don't actually use that structure to, let's say, shelter themselves or shelter their youngs. After uh, the fertilization, they'll go and use uh, or make their own nest to now care for the young. So this adding of this home, this whole structure, is really just a display to show competence, to show their genetic fitness, but it actually serves no purpose in a functional type of way. So it's an interesting example of this more or creating something that doesn't have a tangible impact or benefit, uh, but we still see biology favoring it in some way. And also we can understand as any living being, there is a desire for acquisitiveness or acquiring things that you will want to uh, look for food, shelter, because you need things to survive. And also, as, as we can think about the future, we also know we need to prepare for the future. So we don't just need enough for now. We need more. And so we can see that some uh, aspects of this desire to add could likely come from this tendency towards adding being a good thing, having more being a good thing. And the same feeling of acquisition, it actually feels good. Maybe this could be related to things like retail therapy, where we feel good about buying something. But this tendency that uh, things feel good when we get them also in the brain, we see that it's very much linked to the thinking and emotional centers of the brain. So we likely really feel good when we're getting more. And unfortunately, this tendency to like acquiring things in one extreme can lead to things like hoarding. And he shares a story of these brothers, really one who was hoarding, but the other one was living with him. But we see that um, he was hoarding actually because he was hoping his brother, I think, would gain sight back. He had some kind of a ailment and he lost his sight and he was hoping he would get it back. And so he thought, for example, I'm going to save all these newspapers so one day he can read them and look at them. But so he shares that story. And so we see hoarding, which um, we can see as 
uh, a psychiatric disorder, so to speak, but like many psychiatric or psychological issues, it's an extreme of something that is natural, normal, and even healthy, that there is a desire to acquire that we have. So unfortunately, in this way, this is one of the ways that biology might gear us towards looking for more. We, we want to keep getting more and having more. Also, if we look culturally, he has a chapter, and it's an interesting play on words, morality. So imagine the word morality, but with the E, M-O-R-E. And this uh, tendency in more recent culture of really focusing so much on acquiring uh, goods and having things. Or if we look at how our economies function or are measured, we look at GDP, gross, uh, gross domestic product. And so we're looking at how much are things worth in a, in a money thing, in a money way, and it's all about having more. And of course, consumerism and capitalism are very um, intricately entwined together. And so the more we buy and the more we're encouraged to buy, it's supposed to help the economy. And you hear that a lot. It's good for the economy. But what's interesting is sometimes what's good for the economy, just looking at something like GDP, doesn't necessarily reflect the experience of people or especially it might not reflect the experience of all people. So if you have the uh, extremes of wealth and poverty become greater, if the wealth gap becomes bigger, you might still see the GDP go up and it might look like from this type of a measure that the economy is doing good. So we're doing well, everything seems to be good, but it could be that many more people are actually suffering. But because of our focus on more in this way, that that's how we measure things, sadly, we might miss what hopefully society would be all about, which is the overall well-being of the most people, the greater good. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, perspective on showing that more seems to be baked into our culture as well, this sense that uh, we measure things on how good they are based on things being added to them rather than thinking of subtracting or it might make it harder for us to think about subtracting. So I'll continue on this theme of culture and how it could be related to, to more and some things that we see in our current experiences, for example, of being busy and the concept of time fabin, and continue the discussion on the book Subtract by Lighty Klotz. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Subtract by Lydie Klotz. And so, as I was mentioning before, culture also plays a part. Always culture and, and biology interact, so sometimes it's hard to say which came first, kind of like the chicken or the egg. Uh, but so, you know, as I was mentioning before, there's in our economy and the way we look at things, which also might be based from this desire to have more and feeling better with more, we can notice that there's bias towards having uh, more things. And even with the way we use our time and activities, people tend to add new meetings, add new hobbies, activities that they're doing, but rarely do we take things away. And so he, he brings up the concept of time famine, this sense that many people can have in modern society that we don't have enough time to do everything we are quote unquote supposed to do or, um, required to do on our jobs or in our lives in general. And people have the sense of never having enough time. I also think there's a 
bias towards that as well that that if even with our time feeling like you don't have enough because you're so busy and filled with things you might notice this most time when you ask people how are they doing i've said it so many times myself too a very common response is like oh busy just so busy because uh, we think it we know it looks good or we think it looks good to be busy and the opposite of that or what people think of as the opposite of that comes off as lazy if you have a lot of free time it, that's not a good thing or at least in today's day it's not a good thing in other periods of history is actually something that you would show off that you have free time but nowadays it's very common to uh, talk about how little free time you have so some of it is a bit of boasting or um, you know posturing that we might do and i've even seen memes where people will you know show a picture of someone just like lounging and you know it says like you know i tell my friends i'm so busy then this is what i'm actually doing like not doing much so there is some of that posturing for sure but there's also a reality and he shares in the book some studies of people i'm looking at i think one was in the military where certain officers they had to do something like 280 days worth of work or activities and they only had 250 days to do it something where quite literally they would have to cut corners either lie about things or disobey orders in some way they had to do something to make it fit so we do see that we have this tendency to add and then add and add and so even with our time it seems that subtracting it it seems that we don't get to that as a possibility to say you know what? why don't i take things away why don't i not have these meetings Now, what's interesting is if we look at what's happened in this past year and a half, of course, we would not want it to have happened to have the pandemic and for so many um, lives to have been lost and people affected in so many ways um, by it. However, one thing that many people experience, some people still had to work as much as before, if not more, depending on their occupation. So it was not a luxury that everyone experienced. But for many people, things did slow down. A lot of responsibilities they had, even going to work, different types of meetings, gatherings, all those things had to be canceled. So we did have a shift in the way that we used our time or in some ways a forced or unplanned reset of how we used our time. And I think a lot of people have recognized this. Actually, I think in our lives, we want to be intentional and purposeful. So we hopefully wouldn't need a pandemic to make us evaluate our lives and how we're spending our time. But for many people, this forced reset had them evaluate or reevaluate how they're using their time. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, even for myself, but for society at large, my hope was that we wouldn't go back to normal. That was one of the things that feels like so long ago, we would be here to hearing about, well, can't wait till we go back to normal. But even back then, I was hoping that we wouldn't go back to all of the normals because a lot of the things that were normal were very unhealthy. And this was one of them, the ways that we spent our time and and how uh, few hours families tended to have together or parents had with their kids because they, quote unquote, had to be at work for a certain number of hours because that looks good or that's what the, the bosses or people expect and so they have to be there and now we're we're like well you know so many of our as they say so many meetings could have been an email but also so many of the meetings could at least be not in person and also could be removed maybe we can make some of them emails or make them less frequent as well so i think it's been an interesting forced subtraction that happened during the pandemic 
that allows us to reevaluate things. And often, until we have a huge like paradigm shift, um, we don't recognize that many of the things that we thought were indispensable that we had to have, whether it's meetings and things we did with our time, or if we're talking about um, things that we have, possessions, we realize that they're not so indispensable. We can do without them. So we could see our culture, and I think especially American culture, is very much about more and more and more. And more for reasons that I explained a bit before about the competence in the bowerbirds, the same thing can be true for us. I was thinking about this as I was going for a walk this morning, this sense that, you know, if someone comes to your home and, and um, Lydie Klotz talks about his own experience with his home and having an addition, which is kind of, I know he kind of points out the irony in that. But if we think about someone coming to your home and you want to show them something, you show them something that's new, an addition, whether you've done something to the home or a new possession. Unless they've been there before, really there's no way that a subtraction would show some kind of competence or accomplishment, or as we see in math, and you mentioned in the book, showing your work. So I can't bring you to my home and say, oh, there used to be all this clutter here that um, using Marie Kondo's techniques I've gotten rid of, unless you saw the clutter before, then maybe you could see that my getting to less took work. But when we do more, it's very easy to show that as work and to try to show that as competence. I remember when I was a kid, I was in this book club for school we had to do. It's funny, I'm still doing these book clubs now, but it was kind of a book club at school and you had to do like little book reports and we'd share them in small groups. And I remember I would sometimes write these excessively long reports where I would sometimes be copying parts of the book, not in a plagiarism way, but to share with them about this is what this part of the book said. And I remember very clearly the feeling I had was the longer it's it's is, the more work, quote unquote, I've done and the better it is. And so I remember feeling like, oh, I did 12 pages. So that's really good. That's a lot of work. Even though when I look back, it really wasn't that informative, probably not that enjoyable for the my classmates to listen to me droning on and on. But this feeling that, well, I've done a lot of work and here is my proof. And, uh, you know, college professors, when they give essays, usually there's a minimum. It has to be three page minimum. Sometimes it'll be, let's say, three to five. So there is a maximum. But very commonly, you'll see a, a minimum word count because there's this sense that if you do more words, that means more work and something better. When actually, uh, when you want to write, the best writing is concise and clear and, and to the point. Uh, which is why I was surprised that this book that Lydie Klotz wrote on subtract was 800 pages long. No, I'm actually just kidding. It was like 250, which is quite reasonable. But I did think that would be funny if the book on subtraction was it was extremely long, but no, it was definitely a, a reasonable length. But there is a sense that giving more in this sense means better work, means you've done better, means that you've contributed something better when it's not actually the case. But uh, I think there was research he cited, or at least looking at teachers and their grading, and they tend to think that longer essays, longer work is better. So we can see there's a lot of ways that we are biased towards adding when we are trying to figure out how to make things better, when we want to try that we're good at something, when we want to try to show competence, and even biologically as well, we can be 
wired towards that. And so that's why it seems um, Lady Klotz has done this research and also written this book to try to make us more aware of this, this whole way of doing things that we tend to neglect to recognize that actually sometimes taking away can be uh, a good way to actually make something better. And as I mentioned in the previous segment, what's so important to keep in mind is it's not now to say always subtract, that this is going to be the best way to handle things or to make things better, but that it's actually uh, something that we tend to neglect and we want to be aware of, that this is a possible way to make things better. So again, it's not add or subtract, it's add and subtract. And sometimes the best solution will combine those things. Let's say, for example, if you're working with Legos, even as was the example, it might be to take some away here and also add some somewhere else. But we want to just be aware of this. And it does seem that it's harder for it to come to our mind. And that's why I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm glad I read this book because I hope it will include this perspective, or at least at times make me want to remember to consider this and that almost I think it's not just that we tend to prefer addition sometimes subtraction because addition is like showing work it almost feels like you're taking work away so it's actually making it worse so I think it's not just a bias towards addition it's also an aversion from loss which also he mentions things like loss aversion um uh, Tversky and Kahneman's research on that, that when it's equal money, we would rather, uh, we feel worse losing $100 than we feel good gaining $100. So losses loom larger for us. So I think it makes sense. We do have this loss aversion, not just when it comes to things like money, but when it comes to doing things, because it feels like we're taking something away. It's like I'm erasing some of your work. So I think that's an interesting point to keep in mind. Um, in the later part of the book, he talks about ways to, to implement this. It was interesting. He had a whole chapter called uh, A Legacy of Less, which was about things like climate change and the and human beings' impact on the environment in the now what we call the Anthropocene, I don't know if I'm saying that right, actually, era where humans are having this huge impact on the planet, uh, undeniable impact on the planet and that it's important for us to think about this and here's somewhere where less becomes a very important and this theme of subtract is very important because if we keep doing things the way we're doing them uh, we're gonna we already have faced but we're going to continue to face really big problems uh, on the planet and our ability to survive and live or at least live the way we are living at this current time and things like recycling are good but as he's saying, when we're talking about subtract, it's not just about reusing things we have, you know, recycle, reduce, reuse. We sometimes have to look at ways where we can actually take away some of the things we're doing. And here, actually, the pandemic also gave us some insight or at least some um, illustrations of how this could work. I think during the pandemic, for certain periods of it at least, we became not... I was about to say carbon, carbon neutral, definitely not that, but carbon levels became less for the first time, I think, since like the industrial revolution or for the first time in a long time, we actually saw uh, carbon emission levels go down, or at least the rate go down compared to what we were doing. And we all function now again, life was very different, but I think it was a reminder that things can be different. And we also saw parts of our planet 
recover from this change or at least less use that we were doing, this subtraction that was happening in what we were doing, had these beneficial impacts that I think, um, you know, is quite interesting to keep in mind. I, I'm reminded now of this nature of documentary I was seeing recently, and I think David Attenborough, I think I would probably remember any nature documentary being narrated by David At Attenborough, even if it wasn't him, but was talking about cheetahs and cheetahs with their young, and the mother will go hunt for the the babies, the cubs, and then when she finds prey and kills it, she will make this kind of like a sound, not quite, not quite a purr, but I forgot exactly the sound, to let the baby cheetahs know to find her to come to where she is to get food. But she has to do it at a certain level, volume level, where they can hear her, but not so loud, where it'll attract other um, predators or scavengers that might come take the food. And what they found was that because there were so many safaris in this area, the sounds of the trucks, even from a distance from the different uh, trucks that were taking the people around in the safaris, would drown out the sound of the mother to her baby cubs. So a lot of less cubs were able to find their mother, and this would lead to less cubs surviving. However, with the safaris not happening for a while because of the pandemic, the rate of the cheetah cubs and the cheetah's population in this area was going up. So one of these unintended, I wouldn't have thought of something like this, where less, by less humans being in the environment of these animals, led to them thriving in a way we, we couldn't even anticipate. And so that's, of course, this very small kind of microcosm way. But it's something to keep in mind that we likely will have to consider less as solutions to making the environment better. Um, he shares some examples of, you know, more solutions to the environment, for example, um, you know, using huge mirrors to block some of, you know, a lot of the sunlight away from the planet or changing the color of certain parts of the planet that might make it reflect more light or all sorts of things. And it's interesting, those are very ad solutions. And likely, again, the solutions to anything, including the environment, will definitely be add and subtract. We want to make sure we don't forget using subtract or looking at subtract as an option. And that, to me, is one of the key takeaways from the book is that we tend to overlook subtract options very commonly. And so that's something important to keep in mind that my mind might not go there without some extra effort or me considering different possibilities. As is often the case, we want to try to think differently, uh, rethink what we're doing, look at it from different perspectives, assume maybe you're wrong. So what would that look like if you're wrong? and then looking at it in a different way. And so also different things. Am I looking at the different options? And so always, I think the best we can do with whatever we're talking about is to be flexible and to have most the most tools at our disposal. And so subtract is a huge area of looking at things that, as I mentioned, is, is a theme throughout the book, we tend to overlook and one that can be very insightful and impactful in our lives. And so what I want to do in the third segment of tonight's show is looking at subtract uh, from some aspects that are more relational or psychological uh, that came to my mind today, um, looking and thinking about the book. So when we come back, some thoughts based on my reading of the book Subtract by Lighty Klotz. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I mentioned before the break, I wanted to 
um, look at some psychological aspects or areas where we can think about this concept of subtract in this book, Subtract by Lighty Klotz, that at times might be overlooked. So to begin with, we have this tendency towards adding, and even in our relationships, we might think that's the case. So let's say if we, we look at a couple and their communication. Now, I will say this, something I talk about a lot on the show is how most relationships, or I can say almost all relationships, are missing or something that's affecting them negatively is not having certain conversations, unhad conversations, either because it's a taboo or uncomfortable topic, or because the culture of the relationship is one where people are not sharing or giving their partner really the full insight of what they're experiencing in the relationship. So uh, that definitely, I think, still is true that oftentimes or almost always we have to look at what are the conversations we're not having that we need to have or should have to keep and maintain a healthy, happy relationship. But as the book says, it's not about add or subtract, it's add and subtract. And so one area in relationships where this can be true is we do need space in our relationships. And so the analogy I like when it comes to space is to think of the relationship like a fire. And so to keep a fire going and strong and burning hot, you need the closeness to create the heat, but you also need some space to create the oxygen. The fire needs room to, to breathe, so to speak, in order for it to keep burning. If you don't have enough of either, you don't have a fire or it's going to go out. If you don't have enough heat, the fire really won't even start or it won't keep going. Or if there's no space, you don't have the oxygen that's needed to keep the fire going. And so in a relationship, you you need that too. So many relationships, partners are not spending enough time. So again, it's not either or, but that's often um, the case. You don't have to just do one of them. But also in some relationships, there can be too much closeness. And this also is very common in family relationships as well, where there can be too much closeness um, that gets in the way of relationships being healthy and as strong as they can be. And what could be strange for some people to realize if you're in a dependent type of relationship or an enmeshed relationships, that is sometimes called, where you are too close, too involved, too, doing too much for and with one another, what's going to make your relationship better isn't doing more things together, isn't... Um, helping out with your adult child or child in some way, it's giving them some space, which can be very difficult. And as I thought about this, you can see that often this feeling of more is coming from a place of anxiety as well. And we all have some anxiety and there's a basic level that's helpful that might make us, for example, want to gather food for the winter, the proverbial winter kind of feeling that we have. And so there's some healthy level of anxiety that might make you do that. However, like anything, when there's too much of it, then we keep thinking more is good in whatever we're talking about, many examples throughout the book, but even in our relationships, being closer, doing more things together, spending more time together, um, taking care of, let's say, our kids more and more, that's, we think that's love and that's what's showing them love. And so for these people, whether they're parents, family members, whoever it might be, giving space might feel very bad. It might feel like a unloving thing, 
but it actually could be the most loving thing you can do for your family member. So uh, if you're a parent who is too involved in your child's life, especially as they're getting older, you might think, well, if I want to help my child, what else can I do for them? What should I do next? What can I prepare for them? How can I help them, um, you know, in their next step in life? And what might be hard for that parent to believe or really recognize as being true is the best thing they can do is to not do the next thing or using subtract, actually start doing less for their child. Taking a step back might actually be the most loving thing you can do for that family member. It seems a little bit strange and kind of like how uh, he talks about in the book that, you know, getting to less or doing less doesn't necessarily mean less effort or you're doing less work. It could be because you're doing it, it's the most loving thing you can do. And actually, you might feel like work for someone that it's uncomfortable for them to do so. And so I think very often people who have this anxiety and often we can all have this sense that we think we have to keep doing more to make things better or to love our uh, family members, friends, whoever might be in some ways. But sometimes less is also an option we need to look at. And so a lot of families I work with where the parents are overly involved in their kids' lives throughout life, but especially as they get into adolescence and then early adulthood, what happens is they're doing too much. They are uh, making too many decisions for their kids, controlling too many things, telling them do this, don't do that trying to, um, you know, resolve, remove pain for them. So they say, well, maybe if I could take away pain, I guess that's a type of subtract. Let me do this for them. How, why should I let them feel any pain? But they don't realize they're also taking away opportunities for growth for their child to get stronger, smarter, to trust their own decision-making and ability to make decisions and then deal with the consequences of those decisions. So very often when parents come to me in these situations and parents that are, of course, anxious and worried about things, they might be even more likely to go to therapy to figure out what can I do. But usually their what can I do question is already expecting a what can I do of addition. So what more can I do for my child? And they even might say that I've done everything. So now what should I do? And the answer that they might not want to hear or might not even come to their mind because of their bias towards doing more is that they need to do less. Pull back a little bit. Give your child some space. And even we see this in communication, which is where I want to talk the rest of the show. Starting first with the parents, very often they say, oh, you know, my teenage or young adult child doesn't tell me anything. They don't tell me anything about uh, what's going on in their life, what's happening, and that makes me worried. And so now they're looking for ways to get more information, either by asking questions, aka interrogating their child, or trying to snoop on their child in various ways, and they become detectives trying to figure things out. And of course, none of these things are going to help the relationship or likely get them the information they even want, let alone we should think about should they have all that information. But in general, improving their communication with their children, very often I'll have to advise, advise them to do less, meaning giving their child some space when it comes to communicating. First of all, not hounding them with questions constantly. Also, of course, what they're asking, usually parents that are worrying, they're worried about a few things, things like their grades or work, or um, if they're doing drugs or alcohol and their dating relationships, and they're trying to get all this information from them. And usually if they're worried, they're going to get anxious about 
thing. So their reactions usually tend to be pretty strong. So if the kid says they did something that they don't like, they get judgmental and go off and try to control more. And so the kid, of course, is going to learn to say less. They're already doing subtraction because they know that when they talk to their parents, it's not going to go well or feel good. So they learn that the less I say, the better off I am. And so when I try to advise parents that, you know, if you actually take a step back, first of all, ask less of them, not frequently hounding them with the questions, definitely not interrogating them. And also if you respond a bit less, meaning that if they tell you something, you don't snap at them, you don't judge them, you don't make them feel bad, you don't go off on them, you don't punish them harshly. Well, then you're more likely that they'll start coming to you. And this is what they often experience is that if they don't keep hounding their kids and they're not judging their kids, slowly the child actually starts coming to them. Because when you keep hounding and pushing and judging, you've created this cycle where now the kid is protecting themselves from you. They're going more and more into their own cocoon, try to get away from you. But if they see that you're not going to respond in that way, now you're actually going to get more from them. And so parents will often say, now my... My child, and by child I don't mean necessarily a little kid, teenager, young adult, is telling me more about their life because I'm asking them way less and I'm reacting less. And so this brings us into just one of the main components of communication and conversations is listening, which is the part of the conversation where I don't want to say you're doing less because, again, uh, it doesn't mean that this kind of less or subtracting is less work. Active listening, as you might hear it, or really listening carefully does take a lot of work and effort. But often when we're having a conversation or we're, we're about to go talk to someone, this could be parents with their kids or a friend, we, we think of what's the right thing to say? I got to know the right thing to say to this person. Oh, my kid's going to ask me about drugs or alcohol or sex, and I have to know exactly what to say. And so we get so fixated on this addition part of what we're going to add to the conversation as far as the words we're going to say. But it's so important to recognize in a way what could be the subtract. That doesn't mean it takes away. But the part where you're going to do less when it comes to speaking and listen more. Leave space for your loved one, whoever it is, partner, friend, to share with you what's going on for them. Even as a therapist, this is something that we get trained in and we have to remember that often we might think that, okay, well, if I'm the therapist and I'm helping them, I have to say a lot of really good things every session or really, you know, talk a lot or, or show them that I'm earning the money of what I'm doing of being their therapist. But a lot of therapy is listening and creating that space, which is very valuable and something that can be very healing in and of itself. I think it was Winnicott who said something along the lines that uh, I was a much better therapist once I stopped trying to prove how smart I was. In a sense, meaning that once I stopped trying to show that I can make these really good interpretations or share my knowledge about something or my expertise, when you're listening more, you actually become a better therapist and we, bet in general, become better communicators. So I thought that was an interesting point that came to me in, in reading this book, something that I try to do with my clients or in general with people, but recognizing that, yes, talking is good. And I, I do know the irony of me talking for like almost an hour straight as I talk about 
listening now. Uh, but recognizing that, yes, we need to talk and the words you choose are very important. So it's not saying that doesn't matter at all, but recognizing that so much is done in the way that we listen and we create space. And going back to parents and how I talked to them about communing with their, communicating with their kids, usually what you end up with is when parents want to have important conversations with their kids, it turns into a TED talk where the parent thinks, okay, I got to say this and that. And then they start talking for 10, 15 minutes straight. The kids zoned out probably by second, like 20, if that, and not even paying attention. And the parent finishes, okay, we had a good talk, which really means I gave a good talk, not that we had a good talk as in conversation. And so I'll advise parents, I'll say, look, if you're going to talk to your child about something that you think is important, or really any conversation, but especially something important, if you're talking more to them, it's more than them, it's not going well. It needs to be a dialogue, not a monologue. It needs to be a conversation where you're trying to understand them better, not think I have to just fill them with some knowledge or information that I think I know is the right thing. And that's my whole role. So ask questions and then wait. Another thing people do, especially if they have some anxiety about the topic or anxiety in general, often is They'll ask a question if they don't get a response in like two seconds, they start talking and filling in the space or asking it again or asking it a different way. Ask a question and now subtract in the sense that you don't need to say anything else and just wait a little bit. Give them a few seconds, maybe many seconds, and they will fill that space almost always. It's also something that happens in therapy. Anyone feels anxiety when there's that awkward silence, but to resist filling it and see where your client goes next or what they say to fill that silence can be very important. Or also just giving them that space to reflect a bit before what they say next. We have a tendency there to think addition is good. We have to keep talking, fill the space, but give them a little bit of time to think and reflect. And we can recognize that just like in other areas of life, in our relationships, sometimes we neglect to think of the untapped potential of less in what we can do. So those are just some thoughts uh, related to more psychological factors of relationships and listening that I thought of uh, on reading this book, Subtract by Lydie Klotz. Hope you'll read it and check it out. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fayyad Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.